0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, Pastor Teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going to continue on our summer series, taking away a break away from the Gospel of John, started in June. Uh, we're nearing the finish line of it's about ten of the most popular topics that our church wanted to deal with regarding what the Bible has to say. Many of these have been somewhat or could be considered to be controversial speaking in tongues election how the Christian interacts with government um, but we just looking to see well what does the Bible have to say on every one of these issues it doesn't need to be divisive nobody needs to get uptight and so forth that hasn't happened it's been a great joy and blessing and all it's done is foster great discussion in our local body here and I've just been getting nothing but great feedback good discussions great questions So it's been a blessing for me. I've been reminded of many great truths. have learned much this summer and hopefully you have as well. And so today's topic is another one of those topics of interest from you. And it is what the Bible says about singleness. I will say this, in preparing for all those other difficult messages that could at times be controversial and divisive in the church, this one... What the Bible says about singleness was the most difficult for me to prepare in terms of what I was going to study. And the most difficult thing was deciding what to land on and to say. There is so much that needs to be said on this issue. It is a highly neglected issue. It's not uncommon to hear things about what the Bible says about marriage and parenting and all the time. But singleness? I was just thinking, I haven't heard very many sermons on singleness in the 22 years I've been a Christian but it is a very important issue it's an issue we need to contend with and deal with our church is a perfect example of that because we have many people who are single at gbf a high percentage of single people and that's why i got such great feedback from you when i asked you what do you want to hear about and there was just a resonating loud cry singleness does the bible have anything to say about it and indeed it does it's overwhelming uh, all the principles that intersect with the truth about singleness so Before I talk today about what the Bible has to say about singleness, I do want to define singleness. I'm taking it from a very narrow point of view. Uh, First of all, I'll be talking about singles who are Christians. That's what I'm addressing today. I'm assuming that you are a believer and a Christian. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus Christ personally, and you're single, uh, your singleness is not the issue you need to be concerned with in life. That is not a priority. It's knowing Jesus Christ personally and What's going to happen when you die? And what's happening right now in terms of your relationship with God? That is priority number one for you if you're a single and not a Christian. You need to deal with that first. Your walk with God. So the topic today is directly towards uh, singles who are Christian. You're born again believer. You know Jesus Christ. I also want to further define what I'm talking about singleness. I'm talking about singleness from a biblical point of view in light of the way it's defined in 1 Corinthians 7, and that is you are a single... If you are of marrying age, so if you're in second grade, I'm not really talking about you today necessarily. Could be for your future, 20 years from now, 15 years from now. But right now, the topic at hand today is dealing with people who are of marrying age. Boy, that's a divisive question right there. But anyway, (laughs) uh, of marrying age, and you are currently not married for whatever reason. Whether it is you're a widow, a widower, you got divorced uh, because you were married to an unbeliever who divorced you, uh, you're single because you were abandoned by a, somebody you had a relationship with or a spouse, uh, or maybe you are a divorced Christian who divorced another Christian. By the way, the Bible addresses all of those. And, or maybe you're just a virgin who has never been married. So. We're talking about singles who are of marrying age, who are not married, and here's the important part, and are not sexually active. If you're single, if you're not married and you're shacked up with somebody else who is not your spouse, I'm not talking to you this morning because you're involved, not in singleness, you're involved in fornication, immorality. Okay, so we're not going to address that. That's a different issue. Or maybe you're not living with that person, you're just you're dating somebody and the two of you are sexually active. You don't qualify about what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about singleness of those who are refraining and abstaining from sexual practice of any kind. That's singleness from a biblical point of view and definition. So if you're not married and you're sexually active, whether it's with somebody you're not married to or pornography on a regular basis or self-gratification, you need to examine your life before the Lord. Abstain from that. Ask His forgiveness. Get back on track with God. So, being real focused today on what we consider to be single. So, if that definition of singleness applies to any of you, here we go. I came up with five principles or things we need to keep in mind as we look at what the Bible has to say about singleness. Um, Again, these are just a survey that we're doing this summer. One Sunday doesn't really do justice to exhaust the topic of singleness. Because there's so many different variables and scenarios and situations. So don't be frustrated if you leave today thinking I didn't answer all of your questions. Don't be frustrated and leave today if I just created more questions in your mind. Because that might happen in light of all the biblical principles that I raise. Uh, But I just tried to focus in on the most important ones for consideration. And if you want to do further study or consultation or talk or pray or whatever, we are open to that as a church and as a leadership, but also for your own personal study. At the very end in the notes, I put great recommended uh, resources that could help you as a single person if you want to know more about that topic. So they're listed on the back there. Uh, the w- new book called Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong has a chapter specifically on Christians who are looking to date and using the Internet and is that legitimate and all that stuff. Very practical chapter. Uh, another one there that I would highly recommend is anything by Patricia Ennis. Dr. Patricia Ennis, Master's College. Home economics professor who's uh, been single her whole life, has the gift of singleness. Incredible woman of God. And two more. First Corinthians commentary by Gordon Fee. If you're interested, First Corinthians 7. Uh, he does a fantastic job. If you are married and you want to improve your marriage, if you are single and you want to know the will of God as a single person, you should be living in First Corinthians 7 on a regular basis. It is the most exhaustive, definitive chapter on marriage and singleness in the Bible, bar none. And one of the most practical. problem is it's very confusing. Some translations botch a few verses, make it even more confusing. That's why you need a good resource. Gordon Fee on 1 Corinthians, or Johnny Mac, excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians 7 as well. So those are just some resources if you have further questions. But here we go. Five points on what the Bible has to say about singleness. But before we get to that, I want to expose some myths about singleness and marriage. A through F. Here we go. These are myths. These are not true according to the Bible. Maybe you believe these. I'm just telling you I'm, I don't believe it. These are not biblical, but they are very common myths that are propagated even in the Christian world. Myth A. If you are single, especially if you're older, 30s, 40s, 50s, if you are still single, there must be something wrong with you. That is a myth. Or it could be. Uh, B, second myth that we hear all the time. You should live together before you get married. That is a myth. That is a lie. That is sin. But it's recommended all the time today. Yeah, you need to live together for a while to see if you're compatible. That's immorality. That's not wisdom. Another myth, letter C. You need lots of money and a house, and a career before marriage. You need to thoroughly establish yourself before you get married. I am amazed, uh, as I've been a Christian for 22 years and been counseling for 10 plus years, I'm amazed at how many Christian parents just kind of lose their senses when their children start getting engaged and ready for marriage, and they just they don't want to think biblically anymore, and it's all emotional and out of fear. And this is a very common one that many Christian parents try to foist Onto their Christian young people. Well, you don't have a career yet, and you don't have your third master's degree yet, and you haven't established yourself yet, and you don't have two houses yet, and you don't have an established career, and what about... That's not in the Bible. What kind of career, money, house, worldly wealth did Joseph and Mary have as teenagers when they got married? Not a... Thank you. We're thinking biblically this morning. Not like the world. Myth D. Compatibility is priority number one. Compatibility is priority number one when you're thinking about getting married. What I mean by compatibility, I mean human compatibility. You know that uh, dating service, they have 25 areas of compatibility. Whoop-de-doo. Does the Bible say you need 25 areas of compatibility? I don't think so. There's really only two areas of compatibility that you should have when you get married and be knowledgeable of. And I say this to people that I'm premarital counseling to. Here are your two areas of compatibility. Number one, you should be a Christian, the person you're marrying should be a Christian. That's clear in Scripture. Area number two of compatibility, you are a pathetic lowly sinner, and the person you're marrying is a pathetic lowly sinner. End of story. Go get them. You're going to need the grace of God in your life, day to day. Marriage, it's an adventure. And you need the grace of God. Anything beyond that, I'd say a secondary, tangential, maybe even insignificant, Insignificant doesn't matter. Well, you can talk Big McManus because your children aren't of marrying age yet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Talking with great authority, but I am training them with this mindset. So here's other, here's areas of compatibility, supposedly, that you're supposed to have before you get married, according to even some Christian parents. Ethnicity. Well, they're not of your ethnic origin. Yeah, they are. We all came from Adam and Eve. Seriously. Well, what about their hobbies? What about their family and their family background? What's the in-laws like? That doesn't matter. You leave the parents and become one flesh. Create your own family. Background. Well, what about age? Not necessarily an issue if both are of marrying age, mature, and God brought them together. Personality type. Who cares? That's what I would say. What about their career? What are they going to do? Are they going to make a lot of money? Can they provide? Well, just do they have a willingness to work hard and trust God and hang in there? That's really what matters. So it's real simple. So a lot of it comes down to trusting God. God, did you bring us together? I want the blessing of God first and foremost, not necessarily the blessing of every human being I know on planet Earth regarding the person that I'm marrying. Because you can't please everybody. You can't be a man pleaser. Myth. E. You can date an unbeliever and evangelize him or her in the process. That is totally unbiblical. Christians are only supposed to be dating, being engaged to, betrothing, and marrying fellow believers. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul explicitly said, do not be yoked or bound together with unbelievers. And he's talking about marriage, engagement, and sex. That's what he's talking about. 1 Corinthians 7, talking about singleness and marriage. If you decide to get married and you're a single person, you marry only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39 So dating an unbeliever is not an option. You do that, you're being blatantly disobedient. F. Here's a prevalent one. Being single, celibate, especially in the church and church history, being single or celibate is more spiritual than being married. Uh, No, it's not. Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 7 is that singleness and marriage are the same. They are both gifts from God and one is not more spiritual than the other. That's his point in 1 Corinthians 7. The NIV does a horrible job of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 by giving a mistranslation. They've been raked over the coals for 25 years. Justifiably so. Because here's what the NIV says in 1 Corinthians 7. It is a horrific translation. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to marry a woman. Wow! It is good for a man not to... I'm just telling you, it doesn't say that. Read the NASB, the ESV, the New King James, the King James. It doesn't say that. The Greek text doesn't say that. Literally, it said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the word touch is a euphemism for having sex. And what Paul meant when he was talking to the Corinthians, it's good for you to not be having sex with a woman if you're not married to her yet. That's what he was saying. He was not disparaging marriage at all. Marriage is the very picture... Of Christ's eternal relationship with his church. So Augustine even got it wrong here. He said that being single was more spiritual than marriage. And ever since then the church has fallen for that. Paul condemns that in Scripture. That is not true. First, uh, First Timothy four, one through five, Paul says that marriage is a gift and blessing from God. And he goes on to say that anybody that should teach authoritatively from a religious perspective that celibacy is greater than marriage is a liar he used that word and they got their doctrines from demons satanic teaching seriously wow so those are all the myths so moving on let's go on to our five main points what the bible has to say about singleness point number one right out of the bible right in the beginning It is not good for man to be alone. So God created Adam first, and then God pronounced, I made, I want to make humanity in my image, said the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who existed eternally in a community of persons together. God is a community. God is a social entity. And in order to make the human race in his image, he needed to make more than one. That's why I said it's not good for Adam. To be alone. This is not my perfect will. And so as a result, after Genesis 2.18, He created Eve. He brought the two together. And man and woman together fully reflected the complete image of God who is an eternally social being. So it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make the perfect complement. Not the same kind of person, but a perfect complement who fits to complement in every way. Somebody who's different. A different complement. That's what God said. By the way, they fell into sin in Genesis 3. God cursed Adam and Eve and He even cursed marriage upon sin and complicated marriage. The curse and sin complicates marriage. But even before the curse, God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. How much more? If you don't have the gift of singleness and you are a man, not only is it not good for you, to be alone before the curse, but now that you are a sinner, how much more of a problem and a struggle and a battle you are going to have? So marriage is a good thing. Marriage was God's original intent. Proverbs 18.22 says, the one who finds a wife, he who finds a wife, finds a good thing. A good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Christian parents, don't be frowning and panicking and in fear when your children are thinking about dating and getting engaged and being married. This is a good thing. It's a gift from God. The parental pressure to just keep pushing it off, especially in our society today. Did you know that God created us biologically ready to be married at about age 15, 16? 14, 15, 16? 17? 18? And then in our culture it's no, not until you have a career, college degree. Dr. Laura says repeatedly, not until you're at least age 30. That's unbiblical. That is worldly understanding. It is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Not only that, the person who marries in the Lord, they obtain favor from God. They will be blessed by God in many unique ways. So marriage is a good thing. not good for the man to be alone. alone. Point number two. Parents should biblically prepare their children for marriage. From the time God gives you that baby, one of your main objectives is to prepare that child for marriage. I have four children ages 8 to 17. It's one of my main responsibilities as a parent is I am preparing them for marriage. Actually, what I'm doing is I'm preparing them for independence. So that they grow up and they have the gift of singleness, they choose to be single, I've prepared them to live a life fulfilling and at the same time obedient to God as a single person. But I've also prepared them if they have the gift of marriage, they'll be able to live independently and be married and marry in the Lord and please Him all their days. That is one of the main priorities of a parent. So parents have to be hands-on involved, discipling, mentoring, praying for their children their whole life long to prepare them for marriage. You can't have a hands-off approach as a parent. If you are a Christian, that is neglect. That's sad. That's disobedient. The whole book of Proverbs, all 31 chapters, was given from God to the saints as a guidebook for parents to train their children to teach them how to grow up and even how to be married someday. Especially in Proverbs 5-7. through That's what it's all about. Dads, preparing your young boys for marriage. How to choose the right wife. How to be the right person. In a very hands-on, deliberate, systematic, lifelong way. Basic responsibility of parenting. Just an excerpt, Proverbs 22.6, from that book on parenting. Train up a child, parents. This is a command for parents. Train up a child. Train him up from the time he's in diapers all the way till he grows up to maturity. Train up a child in the way that he should go, that God wants him to go. Setting his course straight. Setting the trajectory very specifically. So they'll be on target. As a Christian, prayerfully, in faith, and when they grow up, this is a promise from God. And when they grow up, when he's old, he will not depart from it. That is awesome. Genesis 24 is a specific example of Abraham, man of God, who was deliberately involved in the process of choosing the right wife for his son. The whole chapter. He is taking charge. He is taking initiative. He commits the whole process to prayer. It's a beautiful thing. God, please bring the right person to my son. And he's selective in the candidates. They can only be a believer. They can only be in the faith. But there's an example of Abraham doing his job as a dad. Hands on in the process of preparing his children for marriage. Ephesians 6-4, training your, your kids to grow up. 1 Corinthians 7, you've got verses 25 to 40 are all about singleness and considering marriage or not. And he's not just talking about the single people, he is also at the same time authoritatively talking to the dad. He's talking to the single person. Single person, if you get married, consider these six things. Dad, are you listening? Dad, you need to consider these six things as well as you help your virgin prepare for marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's a basic responsibility of parenting. And just if you're a parent or maybe you're going to be a parent someday, I was thinking about my history of parenting for 17 years now. And here's what I think. My priorities are, as a parent, with respect to training my — yeah, training my children. I just summarize it with four things. My responsibility as a parent, to my children, from the time they are born till the time they leave home and become independent. My main responsibilities are to evangelize them. And all that that entails, which is discipleship. Number one: evangelize them. Teach them to respect authority, because they're going to have to respect authority the rest of their life, on the job, on the street, with the government. If they're a woman and they marry, marry their husband, there's authority in the home they have to respect. Teach them the principle of submitting to respecting authority. So evangelize them. Teach them to respect authority. Number three, teach them how to think. More so even than what to think. How to think. How to, think. How to be discerning. You can brainwash them and, they, and not teach them how to think. It's not going to do any good. They will just reject everything you told them when they, they're off on their own. Teach them how to think. How to be discerning. That will be a gift to them the rest of their life. Very liberating. So evangelize them. Teach them to respect authority. Teach them how to think. And then the last one is to prepare them for marriage. Or to prepare them to live independently. Those are my four jobs. As mom and dad. Okay, number three. After it's... It is not good for the man to be alone. Number two, parents should biblically prepare their children for marriage. A lot of parents would say, oh, by the way, on point number two, I put biblically prepared. Because a lot of parents think, well, I prepared them for marriage my whole, their whole life. But did you do it biblically? Are you thinking according to Scripture? Or are you thinking according to your culture, your upbringing, your background, your, your preferences, and your fears? Okay, number three, determine if you have the gift of singleness. If you are single, you have to determine if you have the gift of singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, I told you to put your finger there. This entire chapter, we can't go over it. would take me six weeks just to preach on 1 Corinthians 7. There's so much there. Can't do it, so I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights. Just so you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, the most important verse in 1 Corinthians 7, and you should probably circle it or highlight it, is verse 7. That is the key to interpreting the entire chapter. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, he's talk, he just got finished talking to married Christians who were having problems. And married Christians have problems in verse seven he said, "Yet I wish that all people, yes that I wish that all Christians were even as I myself am." What are you talking about? Paul? Well, he was single when he said this. he was probably married before this. We surmise that his, his wife probably died. He was probably a widower. so he knows what it's like to be married and to be a widower and to be single. So he can speech, speak from every vantage point. But now as a single man, he says, "Now I wish that all men are right desire, or it is my recommendation, or it, you know, it's just his desire." Yet I wish that all men were, even as I myself am, single. However, here's the theological binding truth. However, Paul knows uh, each person, each Christian, has their own gift from God. It is a gift from God. And the, the two gifts are the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. That's what he's talking about. That's what the whole chapter is about. Two gifts sovereignly give to a Christian by God. The gift of singleness, the gift of marriage. Each Christian has their own gift from God. One in this manner. That's singleness. And another in that, that is marriage. So you've got to determine if you're a single person, well, what do I do about marriage? Should I get married? Uh, how do I get. Question number one Do you have the gift of singleness or do you have the gift of marriage? You've got to answer that question first. Very important. So determine if you have the gift of singleness. Well, how do you do that? Well, he goes on. He doesn't just abandon us. He tells us in verse 9 how to determine whether you have the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Uh, verse 8 he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, uh, the unmarried is not virgin singles, by the way. That starts in verse 25. When he says in verse 8, I say now to the unmarried, that's people who have been married previously. It could either be widowers or divorced people who are now single. That's who he's talking to in verse 8. His terminology is very specific, especially in the Greek text. But I say to the unmarried, or to the previously married, and to widows, that's females whose husband dies, that it is good for them to remain even as I am. It's good, it's, it is a good thing. It's okay for you. To remain single, you don't have to get married again is what he's saying. Verse 9, but if they do not have, here's the test. What if uh, a widow, her husband dies and she's 42 and she doesn't have the gift of singleness and she's just got this desire to be married? Uh, That's the test. The litmus test is in verse 9. Determine whether you have the gift of singleness or marriage. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, they do not have sexual self-control. If they can't control their sexual passions and desires, that is the test with moral purity, with abstaining. But if if they do not have self-control, let them marry. By the way, the phrase in the middle of verse 9, let them marry, that is an imperative in the Greek text. It is an aorist imperative, which means it is the strongest kind of command. And this is given by God through the apostles. So if you are a Christ, a single person today, and you are a Christian, and you do not have the gift of singleness, this is a command for you. You need to get married. Literally, that's what it says. Let them get married. Why? Well, it is better for them to get married than to burn with sexual passion. They cannot control their passions. And they're going to fall into sexual immorality, which is a horrific thing for a Christian. So that's the litmus test. So I do that with people uh, who are single and people thinking about getting married. And I always ask them, "Do do you have the gift of singleness or marriage? And many times they don't even know. And then I just walk them through this. So... You've got to determine that. So uh, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you have the gift of singleness, which means you could be content the rest of your life. You don't have a burning desire necessarily to get married. To have children, you could, you could be content. I mean, marriage could be, oh, it sounds like a good idea or I thought I'd always get married or it's an okay idea, but I'm also content and I am good. I am satisfied with the notion of not getting married. That means you probably have the gift of singleness. By the way, those people are very rare. That is the absolute total exception in life. I was thinking of godly people I know who definitively had the gift of singleness over the course of my 22 years of being a Christian and it's less than one hand of people I know that have the gift of singleness. And they would say I have the gift of singleness. And all three of them were three of the most influential Christians in my life when I was a young person and in our marriage as a young married couple. And one of them, he's probably 60 now. The only man of God I know who has the gift of singleness as he looks back in his life and says, yes, I had the gift of singleness. And he was my mentor in the early 90s as a Christian. And the two other women, godly women, Ruth with the truth and then another lady that uh, mentored us, older woman, they had the gift. And they all said the same thing. Well, I imagined getting married when I was growing up, but just never happened and I never had a burning desire necessarily necessarily, uh, regretted it. And... I've been fulfilled in my relationship with God. So in hindsight, they see that God has given them contentment. But like I said, it's the exception. At least in my personal experience, um, it's been rare. So determine if you have the gift of singleness. And if you have the gift of singleness, then, uh, you've got, then you need to go to verses 25-40 to 40 because Paul's talking to you. If you do not have the gift of singleness, if you can't imagine living your life by yourself, unmarried then you shouldn't even read verses 25 to 40 because it doesn't apply to you you will be very confused if you have the gift of marriage and you don't have the gift of singleness and you start reading 25 to verse 40 try and apply that to yourself you will be very frustrated because he is only talking to people who have the gift of singleness in verses 25 to 40 because the only command and imperative for somebody who doesn't have the gift of singleness is to get married Very, very important. So determine if you have the gift of singleness or not, or the gift of marriage. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I'm single, and I know I don't have the gift of singleness, and I want to be married, and I haven't even had a date in the last year, I'm in trouble. Help me out here, pastor. Okay, I will. And that's point number four. If you don't have the gift of singleness, and you want to obey God's command, get married then you need to be preparing for marriage. So these are just kind of some practical tips I want to help you with and try to encourage you with so you can hang in there. And that's point number four. If you desire marriage, you don't have the gift of singleness, and you are not married yet, then keep the following in the forefront of your mind and as a life practice. A through K. I know there's not a K. You need to add a K. Letter A. First thing you need to do, if you want to be married and you're not married, Then you need to pray specifically. That's letter A. Pray specifically. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. When I became a Christian at age 19, somebody taught me this verse. Said, Cliff, write down everything in your life, all your desires, your immediate goals, your short-term goals, your long-term goals, everything. Write it down. He put Psalm 37 4 and he said, pray specifically for all of those. When I was age 19, God give me a godly wife, give me a godly marriage. Give me godly kids. I'd uh, maybe like to get go to seminary someday, but I can't afford it. And I'd like to maybe be a pastor someday, but I don't even know if I'm gifted or called to do that. And I'd like to play in the NBA and I'd like to coach in the NBA someday. And why are you laughing? But anyway, so I had all kinds of desires and those two didn't happen because I was too busy to go into the NBA. So I said, I'll just focus on this. So. <laughs> God did bring a godly woman into my life and I did get married and He did bless me and He provided for me for seminary even though I didn't have any money and I was in the hole financially. God is good. I just look back and see what God has done. It's amazing. And that was always praying the desires of your heart. Will you always get the desires of your heart? No. You'll always get an answer though. It's like, yes, or yes, but wait, or no, bad desire, you lose. That's an answer from God, right? Or be patient. Be patient. He always answers the prayer. But you've got to pray specifically. Paul told us to do that. Pray specifically. I've talked to single people who are frustrated. When's God going to get me? give me a spouse? Okay, well, let's talk about this. When was the last time you prayed specifically to God and said, God, please give me a spouse because I don't have the gift of singleness? Uh, I can't remember the last. I don't know if I've ever prayed that prayer. You have not because you ask not. Really? Make it a fervent, regular matter of prayer and get as many of your brothers and sisters to pray and intercede for you specifically. There are many single people I am praying with and for and have been for years. And it's frustrating. How come God's not answering my prayer? Well, we just got to keep waiting, brother. Got to keep waiting, sister. I'm tired of waiting. I know, let's keep praying. This is real life. Letter A, pray specifically. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Make Him the priority. Obey Him. Live in His will. Follow Him. Do what He wants. Obey Him. That's what it means. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make Him the priority. B, solicit help. Solicit counsel. Proverbs 12.15 A wise person listens to counsel. You need counsel as a single person in this area. The implication, by the way, in Proverbs is not just counsel, because there's a lot of bad counsel out there. There's a lot of worldly human counsel. The implication is you need godly counsel. You need biblical counsel. You need counsel from godly people, from your church, from your leaders, from your good Christian friends who know you well, from the Word of God, from the Holy Spirit, from God Himself. That's where you get the counsel. Keep asking for help through counsel. Otherwise, you're going to be myopic in your thinking. Very detrimental. See, be in God's will first. Be in God's will first. Don't don't make getting married an idol. Don't make it an idol of the heart. If it's on the top shelf, lower it to the bottom shelf. Dismiss it all. Forget about it. Put God on the top shelf. This is Matthew 6:33. Jesus said, "Seek first His kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first spiritual reality. Seek first church, church ministry, obeying God, living for God. That's what that means. Living in the spiritual sphere, sphere, all every day of your life. Make God and His kingdom priority number one. And if marriage is constantly right here uh, getting in the way as an idol of the heart, it needs to be subjected." to the bottom shelf. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. You know what that is? That's holy living. That is holy living. You don't have the gift of singleness. Sexual temptation will be a temptation and a stumbling block for you and you need to be morally pure. So if you're involved in pornography, you've got to get rid of it. You've got to have somebody hold you accountable. You've got to confess it. You're involved in an illegitimate sexual relationship with somebody you're not married to. Get rid of it. Get accountability. Get accountability. Ask God to help you. Get back in His will. The pure will of God. Morally pure. Seeking His will. And the promise is, if you do this, Jesus said, then God's going to add everything else to you in life. Well, what is everything else? The priorities in life. Food. Clothing. Provisions. Marriage. Even though it's not in that chapter, but that's what He's talking about. Basic provisions in life. Being God's will. D. What else? Well, stay pure in the meantime. This could be hard. Stay pure. First Thessalonians 4, 3-8 This is the will of God for you, single person who doesn't have the gift of singleness. This is the will of God. This is what God wants for you. He wants your sanctification. What does that mean? He wants your holiness. He wants you to be set apart. What does that mean, Paul? That's a big word. Sanctification. I can't even spell it. Well, and then he defines it. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you abstain from porneia is the Greek word. It just means all kinds of sexual immorality. If you're a single person, you are not married, you don't have the gift of singleness, you need to abstain from sexual immorality if you're a Christian, to be in God's will. If you start compromising, you're out of God's will and you're going to be foggy and trying to live life. Stay pure, get accountability, confess your sin, tell somebody about it, confess your sins to one another, says the book of James. E. Be content now. Right now, don't worry about tomorrow. Be content right now in the moment in your relationship with God. Philippians four eleven. The Apostle Paul, who was married, who was probably a widow, who was single at the time when he wrote Philippians, said this I have learned. It's hard to learn. It takes spiritual maturity. It is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. I have learned. As a mature Christian, as the Apostle Paul, I finally think I have a handle on this contentment thing. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Whether I am single or married. You know, I know a lot of discontented single Christians. I do. They've talked to me. But you know what? I know a lot more discontented married Christians. Serious done a lot of marriage counseling over the years. So contentment is the issue, not whether you are single or married. Next one, F. Be patient. You know that same psalm in Psalm 37, 4 that said, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of the heart? In verses 7 and 9, the same chapter, it says be patient and wait on the Lord. Be patient and wait on the Lord. Two times it says be patient and wait. Okay, you have a desire. God wants to give you a desire if it's legitimate and godly, but He's not going to do it necessarily today, tomorrow, or overnight. Be patient. Wait on him. His timing is perfect. The first wedding that I ever performed as a pastor was two people who did not have the gift of singleness, and they had never been engaged. They hardly ever dated seriously, and they were both age forty. That was fun. We had some great discussions and just picking their brain. I mean, you don't have the gift of singleness, and you're getting so you you got this burning passion to get married. Absolutely, especially the guy. And he was a Christian. He grew up in a Christian home. And he told me his testimony. You know what? He was mad at God in the 20s because he wanted to get married. He wanted to get married in his 20s. He got so mad at God in the 30s, he almost just abandoned God. Okay, forget it. I'm not praying anymore. He said he went through a long period of time. He didn't pray anymore. He didn't read his Bible. He'd go to church and just go through the motions. He was mad. He wasn't mad anymore, though, as they were on the brink of marriage to this... Unbelievably beautiful, godly woman, age 40, the perfect fit for him. And I asked him, So, are you mad at God? How'd you get over that anger? And he said, Well, I got over that anger when I met this woman that God brought into my life. I was not ready to be married in my 20s. I was not ready to be married in my 30s. Man, I look back and see God is wiser than I am, and I am so glad He didn't answer my prayer about that girl when I was 23. And they write me every single year at Christmas and update me, and now they got two children. It's awesome. Wait on the Lord. G practice now getting ready for marriage in terms of your role. What do I mean practice now? Well, there's things you need to, there's a role you need to assume when you get married. If you're going to be a wife, you need to be a submissive wife, a reverent wife. Then start learning to be submissive to spiritual or male leadership right now, whether it is your father, whether it is the pastors at your church, whether it is your employer, learn to be a submissive person now in a godly manner that will help prepare you for the time When you assume the sole leadership of your husband, likewise, guys, while you're waiting to be married and have a desire to be married, then start beginning to practice your biblical role as a husband. And that is being a servant leader, being a loving person, a forgiving person, a gracious person, a nurturing person, a providing person, a protective person, whether it's siblings that you have or people, you know, or sisters in the church or I mean, there's all kinds of examples to be a servant leader. And a provider, and a hard worker. That's what you need to be when you're a husband. So you can start preparing now. Also, you can start preparing and learning how to deal with kids. Start babysitting. Work in the nursery. Oh, we don't have a nursery. Start a nursery. Um, be a Sunday school teacher. Be a preschool teacher. Interact with your nieces and nephews. Spend time with those kids. Get to know them. Don't be afraid of children. So there's ways to prepare even now. Use your time well. Be a good steward. Uh H. So practice now uh, service and submission. And then H is prepare now. Learn from godly couples. Learn from godly couples while you're single getting ready for marriage. And even after you get married and you're a newlywed, you still need to learn from godly couples about marriage. Godly marriages is not common sense. Godly marriages does not come naturally. Uh-uh. Very unnatural. That's why in Titus chapter 2, Paul says... The older godly women in the church on a regular basis need to be discipling the younger women in the church to learn how to love their husbands. Which tells me it does not come naturally for a woman to love her husband in a biblical manner. She needs help. She needs help. She needs discipleship and mentorship. That's what Titus 2 says. Same with the guys. So, spend a lot of time with godly couples. Debbie and I had the great privilege of doing that in the church we were at. Just before we got married and while we were newlyweds. Very helpful for us. Now that we've mastered marriage after 20 years... No, I'm just kidding. Psych! No. You won't in this lifetime. Uh, letter I. Enjoy your freedom. So if you're single right now waiting to get married, then enjoy your freedom while you can. That's what Paul says. First Corinthians 7. Are you bound to a wife? Are you shackled to a wife? Literally. In other words, it's death. Till you part, you are one. Well, if you're single, you've got some freedom. If you're single, you've got some liberties. If you're single, you don't necessarily have to make the bed in the morning or care about it. Once you get married, oh, things matter. So there are great freedoms that you have while you're single. Enjoy those freedoms. Use those freedoms as good stewards. I'm thinking about, man, when I was single, I had a lot of freedom, and then I got married and I lost a lot of freedom. I willingly lost freedom, but I lost a lot of freedom. It wasn't just about me. I've got to put my wife first now. Then I had a kid and I lost even more freedom. Then I had four kids I lost all my freedom. I'm serious. Going camping with four kids? That's not a vacation. But anyway. Um, J. Maximize your service to God while you are single enjoying your freedom. Don't just be free and enjoy your freedom for entertainment, self, uh, hobbies, or whatever else. The priority of that time of freedom should be devoted to the Lord. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. If you are single, you have great freedom. You are undistracted for single-minded devotion to the Lord as a single person. I thank God for a lot of the single person He has brought to our church who are so single-minded on the relationship with God. It is amazing. It is a blessing to see. So I thank Him for that. So while you're single, maximize your freedom in service to God, not just for self. And then finally, letter K, I wanted to add... In the meantime, while you're waiting, don't live alone. The book of Proverbs says, he who isolates himself is a fool. Don't live alone. That is just not smart. It's not wise. Get a companion. Live with your family. We've had a lot of different people live with us over the years at the McManus house. And there were a couple of times where some people who came to live with us uh, were single and they were only here temporarily because they were students on the move away from home. They wanted to live with a family for a reason. They wanted accountability. I really appreciated that. They were honest. So if you're single and don't have the gift of singleness, don't live alone. Even if you have, uh, you know, have a companion, a roommate, a Christian roommate of the opposite gender, of the opposite gender, did I say, I mean, sorry, of the same gender, sorry, <laughs> of the same gender. We'll be clear here. If you're a woman, then your roommate should be another woman who is a Christian and you are friends in the Lord. And maybe you need two roommates. That way if one gets married, you're not abandoned by yourself. Live with a family. Get a dog. Something for companionship. So hopefully those are just practical. Then finally, number five, cultivate a realistic view of marriage if you're single and waiting and just desiring to be married. If you've got this... Yeah, it's easy to get a wrong view of marriage in light of the world or television. Even though they disparage marriage on one hand, there's a false view out there, especially sometimes, that it's all rosy. Well, it's not. So that's why, number five, cultivate a realistic view of marriage. Well, what's a realistic view? Well, A through F. Marriage is only for this life. 1 Corinthians 7.31 The institution of marriage is passing away. So when you're only married to your spouse for this life. When you die and go to heaven, you won't be married anymore. You're not going to be married to your spouse. I don't... Mormon theology teaches you will be married in heaven. That is not true. Islam teaches you will have relationships with women sexually in heaven. That is false. That's false teaching. So marriage is its just short term. It goes like that. It's not everlasting in the eternal perspective. So it is only for this life. B, marriage will not provide ultimate fulfillment. It won't. I know a lot of discontented singles. I know even more discontented married couples. You only find total fulfillment as a Christian in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. The only source of total fulfillment. C. Marriage is difficult and has unique trials. Getting married solves some problems and creates others. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's a a marriage promise. 1 Corinthians 7.28 If you get married, you will have trouble in this life. Wow, thanks Paul. He's not disparaging marriage. He's being realistic. And then he goes on to tell us what those six problems are. Marriage solves some problems. It creates others. The biggest problem is you're marrying another sinner. Living with one sinner, that's bad enough. When you're living with another one, that compounds the issue. Marriage is hard. It's a blessing from God, but it is hard. D, marriage is for life. Till death do you part. There ain't no turning back. Well, it's a prerogative for a woman to change her mind. Well, not in marriage. Divorce is not an option. That's one of Paul's reasons as well. In First Corinthians seven, once you get married, there's no turning back. It is for life. That is God's will. If you're fickle, capricious, used to changing your minds, bailing out on your commitments, whoa, you better be careful about getting married. E. Maintain sober expectations. Maintain realistic expectations about marriage. Maintain realistic expectations about the person you want to marry. I have seen Christians have such high and unrealistic expectations about the person who's a candidate for them to marry that 10, 20, 30 years went by and they missed the boat. It's like they're waiting for for the Messiah to come. Well, He already came 2,000 years ago. Mr. Right, Mr. Perfect. He's not out there. So, be sober-minded in your evaluation of yourself. You are a sinner. And of what your standard is of who you're going to marry. Um, where was I? Number F. You will marry a sinner. James 4.8 We're all sinners. Remember that. You can't escape that. Now, I want to close with this. So today, if you're a single Christian, if you're a Christian and you're and you're single, and especially if you think you don't have the gift of singleness and you have a desire to be married and you're a little bit frustrated and maybe you're even a little older, Don't ever say, I don't have a husband, or I'll never have a husband, because that is not true. Scripture says, God is your husband. The Creator is your husband. Really. That's what the, the whole book of Hosea is about. God is married to His people. It is a covenant relationship. It is a sacred relationship, and a real one. So you do have a husband. Another thought. If you're a single person, you're a Christian, you don't have the gift of singleness, and you're waiting and desiring to be married, wondering, am I ever going to get married? The answer is yes. Did you know that you're already engaged? Maybe you didn't know it. If you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, the church, is the bride, the betrothed, the beloved of Jesus Christ Himself. Did you know that Jesus is engaged right now? He's engaged to His beloved who will be His wife. And it will consummate in a marriage someday in the future. So if you're single, you're part of the body of Christ, and you are engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You will be married, whether you like it or not, as a single Christian. It's a blessed event, and I want to close with that, and that's in Revelation 19. Here's a description of your wedding day, by the way, and what it looks like. And apparently, he's building a really big mansion for you, too. Maybe to carry you over the threshold, I don't know. But here's the wedding. And if you're a Christian, everybody's going to be part of this great wedding feast where the church is... Married to, betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 says he's spending the entire church age, 2,000 years preparing his beautiful bride Till she gets to a point of perfect maturity. She has not one wrinkle, not one blot. The perfect bride. And if you're a Christian, you're a part of the church. The bride of Christ. And the marriage and wedding day in the future, it is yet future, is described this way. Given in a prophecy by the Apostle John in Revelation 19 at the end of verse 6, he says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, wedding day has come. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride? Every believer. What a great truth. Verse 8, and it was given to her to the bride, to the Christians, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, spotless, without sin is what it means. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, of believers, of Christians. Wow! Verse 9. And He said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. Isn't that a great truth? So there is a lot to be encouraged by Uh, if you are a single person and waiting and trying to discern the will of God. Keep trusting Him. Keep praying to Him. Surround yourself with others who are going to do the same. And think about ultimate reality. Your wedding to come to Jesus Christ Himself. An awesome, great truth. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer before we have communion. And I did want to say that if you uh, have somebody you want to talk to or pray with you, Uh, Today, after the church service, Tim Wong will be available right over here to my left, one of our elders, to minister to you in any particular need that you have. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank God for this day. God, we do thank You for the clarity of Your Word, uh, especially on a topic like singleness that affects so many people and uh, can be so emotional because it touches the most important and sacred part of our lives, Lord. and, And loneliness can be a very difficult thing. But I thank You that You've given us answers very clearly in Your Word. And You've given us the community of the church family to, to help us along the way. And the indwelling Holy Spirit who is our friend and our comforter and our teacher. And that uh, there's a great reminder that there's only ultimate fulfillment in You. We thank You for that great truth. We commit our time to You. In Christ's name, Amen.